Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all of you moms out there. Thank you for all that you do. Uh, Today we finish up our series called The Story. Uh, We began last September uh, in the Garden of Eden with the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And today we end in the restored Garden of Eden in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. I hope that you have a, a better grasp of the story of God's plan of redemption. I know how much I have learned uh, from this series myself. Have you ever felt competing claims uh, between your faith and the world that you live and work in? I know sometimes that I have. In my early years, my calling to be a pastor was often viewed as a role uh, that helped people and made a a positive contribution to the world. Uh, Some 40 years later, that has changed more to ambivalence and even on rare occasions, um, some hostility. In other parts of the world, it can mean losing your job or imprisonment or maybe even something worse. The fastest growing church right now in the planet is in Iran. It's, It's led by women. They have no buildings. They meet in homes for worship, which is illegal. They have no power. They have no financial resources. And if they're caught, they are arrested. You ever thought what you would do if you lived in a culture that was hostile towards your faith? Well, the book of Revelation was written to address a similar crisis that was happening with the churches in Asia Minor. It was written around 90 A.D. and addressed to seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It was near the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian, who ruled from 81 A.D. to 96 A.D., and it was under his reign that the empire began once again to crack down upon the church. Now, for the state, it was more a question of of loyalty than it was anti-religious feelings. You see, Caesar was Lord, and it was expected that all good citizens would worship the emperor as God. I mean, even to enter the Agora, which was the marketplace in the city of Ephesus, the shopper was expected to offer incense provided at the entrance and to say, Caesar is the Lord. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal, but wouldn't it make you comfortable if every time you went to the mall, before you could enter in, you had to say, the president is Lord? (laughs) You see, for those first century Christians, Jesus was the Lord, not the emperor. Now, Revelation was written by a man named John. The ancient church believed that it was the apostle John who also wrote the gospel, along with three epistles by the same name. But there's some evidence that perhaps it was written by another John, uh, but not the Apostle. But if it was John the Apostle, he would have been an old man by now. And tradition has it that the Apostle John lived, died, and was buried in Ephesus. So he would have been very aware of the situation in these cities. But at the moment, he's in exile on the island of Patmos, off the coast of Ephesus. It's where Rome sent her political prisoners. And he says he is there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And it's the Lord's Day. 
And John says he is in the Spirit when he hears a loud voice telling him to write on a scroll what he is about to see and to send it to these seven churches. And so John has this vision, and it is a strange one. It is a prophecy of what is yet to come. Playwright G.B. Shaw said that it's a curious record of a drug addict's vision. Well, I don't think that's correct. But even Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer, said he didn't find too much edifying in the book of Revelation. And popular books and, and movies about it have sometimes misunderstood its purpose, trying to find some kind of blueprint for the end of the world. And so as a result, a lot of people don't bother to read the book. They find it too intimidating. But did you know the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing if you do read it? John writes, blessed is the one who reads it and takes to heart what is written in it because the end is near. And so I think it's wise as Christians and as a church that we not ignore his letter. Now, a big, problem, big part of the problem is we simply don't understand the apocalyptic style of literature that it was written in. Revelation has a lot of symbols and metaphors and, and Old Testament allusions and, and numbers, <laughs> lots of numbers. In fact, the number, of seven, the number seven shows up a, a number of times, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven churches, seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders. And on and on. We see similar apocalyptic writings in Daniel, Ezekiel, um, in parts of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and, and even parts of 2 Thessalonians. Now the word apocalyptic means literally unveiling. And so J Jesus didn't give us this vision to John so that we could spend the next 2,000 years arguing about its meaning, arguing whether which chart is correct, or whether we're premillennial, amillennial, or, or postmillennial, or who the Antichrist is. I don't think so. I think it was written by a pastor to strengthen the courage and the faith of his flock, and to give them hope and victory in the face of suffering and hard times. Well, John's vision begins with Jesus, and it is unlike anything you ever imagined that Jesus would look like. Well, he has a robe on, you would expect that, but his hair is white like wool, eyes like blazing fire, feet like bronze, and his mouth is a two-edged sword, and he stands among seven lampstands that represent the seven churches the letter is addressed to. And that's where it begins, with the church. And to each of these churches, uh, Jesus finds something to commend them for. And he commends them for, for their works, for their service, for their faith, for standing up to tribulation and, and for not backing down. All except the poor church of Laodicea. He has nothing good to say about that church. I mean, if Jesus can't find something good to say about your church, well, that's pretty sad. He calls them the lukewarm church. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. You see, somewhere along the way, their faith had started to cool off. They, they became complacent. Their faith had shifted into neutral. And they found themselves no longer caring. 
It's not just Laodicea, to be fair. Jesus has a word of warning for most of the churches as well. Ephesus has lost her first love. Pergamum is too compromising. Sardis is death. Thyatira has a woman he calls Jezebel, who is leading some of the members astray. And each of these, he points out their strengths and their weaknesses. But the remedy for them all is the same. These churches need to make some changes. In a word, they need to repent. You see, there are no perfect churches. <laughs> the church is always in need of, of reform. And if you and I, the church, if we're to be the light of the world, that light needs to be shining brightly to lead the way. We need to repent and we need to believe in the power of God to change us. We've got to let him work um, through his church to turn us around, to confront us, to, to heal us, to transform us. And we need to be willing to repent of our lukewarmness, our, our complacency, our willingness to tolerate evil, injustice, and racism. It begins with us. Well, after the Lord finishes with the church, John sees a door opening, and he's given this incredible opportunity to glimpse into heaven. And as he looks into heaven, what does he see? He sees a throne, and on the throne is seated God. And all heaven is worshiping before the throne. God is the center of this heavenly worship. Now think for a moment what that would have meant for John, for his first century readers. It would have meant everything. It would have told them that, that God is on the throne, that his majesty, his, his glory, his power, and his lordship. It would have told them in a very powerful way that, that God, not the emperor of Rome, not their unfortunate circumstances, not their suffering, but that God alone is in control of the universe. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, John writes, From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. And in verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who was and who, who is and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is not just a ruler. He is the ruler. He is not one of many gods. He is Almighty God. He is Alpha and Omega. That's the, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. In other words, he is the first and he is the last and he is everything in between. He is all-encompassing. Now, when we hear, hear the word king, we think of the sphere of government. We tend to divide up power into government and education and, and the media and the arts and so on. But in the first century... The world that John wrote in, kings ruled everything. And so when he writes that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, he's saying that the lordship of Jesus extends to every single area of our life. He is Lord of all. So what does that mean for the church today? It means that Jesus is Lord over our president, that he is Lord over Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, that he is Lord over Ronaldo and Beyonce and Taylor Swift. That he is Lord over Sean Hannity and, and Anderson Cooper. He's Lord over Vladimir Putin and, and Kim Jong-un and Jeffrey Bezos and, and Bill Gates. 
He is Lord over Main Street and Wall Street. He is Lord over 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and, and over Constitution Avenue and, and Madison Avenue and Park Avenue. That he is Lord over Hollywood Boulevard and Lord over Times Square and, and Lord over Cincinnati. And if you go home and if you look at your address, you will discover that he is Lord there in your home, in your house. You may not know it, but he is. The day is coming, Paul writes in Ephesians, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on every street, on every avenue, and on every road, in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is King. He is the ruler of kings on earth. He is God Almighty. And that one fact alone should put all of your problems into perspective. And it will give you hope for the future. Well, after this glimpse into heaven, John sees a scroll. And on this scroll, seven seals. But no one who is worthy to open the seals. And it breaks John. It crushes him. And, and he breaks into tears. Until one of the heavenly beings points to a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing near the throne of God. And that lamb takes the scroll and all heaven bursts into praise and adoration. And they fall face down and they worship this lamb. Oh, you'll see a lot of worship in the book of Revelation. And the lamb opens the first seal. And for the next 20 chapters, God's judgment is unleashed. Now, this is where I get uncomfortable. This is where I would prefer to stop reading in this book and just skip to the last chapter. You see, the judgment of God is a topic that makes us uncomfortable because it seems to be contradictory to the image of God as a loving God. But what we discover is that it can be a good thing. Some years ago, I developed a cough that would not go away. And so I did my usual thing. I tried to ignore it, but finally my wife talked me into seeing a doctor. And he listened to my chest, and he took chest x-rays, and, and after all of that, he sat me down, and he explained that he could find no physical reason for my cough. And then he, kinda, he began to kind of meddle into my life. He began asking me questions like, how's your home life? <laughs> and do you have a lot of stress at your job? And I knew what he was getting at, that my cough was psychosomatic, and I wasn't sure I liked his diagnosis. I mean, I wanted him to give me a pill that would take care of things, not a, a lecture on stress management. But I listened. And within a week, cough was gone. He was right. You see, that cough was an alarm. It was warning me that, that something was wrong so I could take action to, to correct the underlying problem. And in the same way, God's judgments are a warning. They point us to the truth that, that something is amiss, that something is wrong. They warn us that there are consequences to our sinful actions. 
William Barclay, the late Scottish theologian, wrote this, At the back of it all there is the permanent truth that no person and no nation can escape the consequences of sin. And so it is God's warning of human suffering that lies ahead if you and I refuse to change our ways. And so the Lamb opens the first seal. And a white horse appears on it, a rider with a bow and an arrow and a crown. And the rider is sent out to conquer. The second emerges uh, with a sword on a horse that is fiery red and and this rider takes peace from the earth. And, and then a third rider, a black horse, holding a pair of scales. And it represents economic disaster, runaway inflation, and inequality where even a quart of wheat will cost an entire day's wage. And then on the fourth rider is a pale horse who represents death and Hades and famine, of course, and pestilence. Always follow economic collapse. Isn't it interesting how timeless these things are? Each of these four horsemen is both ancient and contemporary. Every generation has experienced their their destructive power. There's always been rulers who lusted after control. There's always been war. There's always been times of economic chaos and, and widespread poverty. I mean, here we are now suddenly in the midst of this global chaos. And there's always been death and pestilence. Even as modern medicine has found cures for ancient diseases like smallpox and bubonic plague, new ones arise to take their place. HIV, Ebola, SARS, MERS, and of course now COVID-19. There's something else that we learn from Revelation, and it's kind of startling. These horsemen are under the command of God. The seals are broken by Christ, and they come forth only at the command of the four living creatures. They ride forth only under the control of God. And so two things that we learn about God's judgment, and the first is this, it's meant to be correctional. They are meant to teach us something. One example I can think of is found in in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh. And and what it exactly is, we're not really sure. But we do know that it came from Satan, for Paul says so. But we also know that God used this for good in Paul's life to teach him something about God's grace. And and even though Paul prayed three times for God to, to remove it, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. You see, that thorn in the flesh had a redemptive purpose. God didn't cause it, but God used it in a a good way. And in the same way, war and famine and pestilence and poverty are all the result of human sin. But God can use them for redemptive purposes. The presence of the four horsemen is an indictment of a deep moral and spiritual problem in our world that needs to be addressed. We cannot ignore it. The second thing we learn about judgment is that it is conditional. Again, we see a great example in the book of Jonah. You know the story. God tried to, to send him to warn the Ninevites of the consequences of their action. But, but Jonah said no thanks and jumped on a boat going the opposite direction. But three days in the belly of a whale manages, manages to change his mind. 
You see, he wanted Nineveh to experience God's judgment. He wants to see Israel's enemies destroyed. But he repents. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches a message, and the people listen. They realize their wrongful behavior, and they make a vow to change their ways. And the Bible says this, that when God saw how they turned from their evil ways, that God repented, that God changed his mind, God repented of his plans, judgment was averted. You see, God averts judgment if we change our ways. And if that's true, that means that we, the church, have a big part to play. I know sometimes we we want to take Jonah's attitude. We want to sit back and and do nothing and wait for the end to come. And we say to ourselves, let the world go to hell. Why do I care? But clearly, we have a mandate from Christ himself to alleviate suffering where we can. And we dare not allow our hearts to grow cold or immune to the warnings, having seen too many advertisements requesting contributions for starving children. And so generosity and, and serving and, and faithfulness is the antidote for our cynicism. We must not grow weary of the warning of the four horsemen because it is a warning for all of us. Now some Christians will tell me that knowing there is a, a final accounting makes them nervous. But let me assure you, you have nothing to be nervous about. You see, our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus, totally forgiven. And nothing, Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants us to have a great confidence in in Him and to trust Him. Yes, God knows and will share with us the truth about our lives Just as he'll bring all things to light and set all things aright, he'll do that with you and me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light and it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. My life will be judged, but it will be a good thing and it will be clear that it was God's amazing grace that leads us home. Finally, and most importantly, Revelation teaches us that God wins. That God has the final say-so. That Jesus is coming back, and when he returns, it will be the end of history as we know it. Beginning in chapter 12, we have this cosmic war that breaks out. A dragon goes to war with Michael and his angels. And then a beast comes out of the sea, and then another beast comes up out of the earth, and they deceive the world with signs and wonders, and they make everybody take the mark of the beast, which is 666. And then John, or then, yes, then John sees a prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast, and it symbolizes a great city. It is called Babylon, but all of John's readers would have known that that was a code word for the city of Rome. And the city is overthrown, and there is a a millennium, a thousand years of peace. But then one more giant battle over Jerusalem. 
And John sees this vision. All the forces of evil surround the city. And he says the armies are so huge, they look like the sands of the sea. And it looks like this is going to be the biggest battle ever fought in the history of the world. But it is over in a moment. The outcome, never in doubt. And then John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't that amazing? I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated upon the throne said, I am making everything new. Eden is restored to God's original intention. Paradise lost, paradise regained. And you and I, we need to remember this, that God alone is the ultimate power, that he has no rival, that he is the creator of the universe, that he created me, indeed he, he loves me and has a plan for my life. And however feel, fearful or uncontrolled the forces of darkness on earth may seem to be, they cannot annul or eclipse the greater fact that God has the final say. So let me tell you that no matter how out of control your life may feel today, the ultimate truth is that God is in control. And what a difference it will make in our lives when we come to believe that. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for that promise in the last book, in the last chapter of the Bible, that all things will be made new. Oh God, as we come to trust in you more deeply, make our lives new. Help us to repent. Help us to align our wills with your will. Help us to surrender our lives, our very beings, to your greater purpose for this universe. Oh God, help us to trust in you and to believe in you for the final outcome of our lives, we pray. Amen.